Pope Benedict XVI passed away on December 31st. And by now you've certainly read many tributes and maybe watched the funeral which took place last Thursday. Pope Benedict XVI was a gentle, humble, shy man, a heroic champion of the Catholic faith, and arguably one of the greatest theological scholars we have seen. Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano offers his thoughts and reflections on the great late Pope Emeritus. So that's coming right up on Veritas Catholic Network. We're on the radio at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM and on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can download the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's good to see you, my friend. Happy New Year. Happy right? New Year, Excellency. Once again, yeah. as we kind of like plow our way into the, the Lord's vineyard here, as we do his work. Yes. Um, but, but sadly, sadly, because of the passing of Pope Emeritus Benedict. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you know, Excellency, we've heard um, by now, we've heard a lot of tributes to the great late Benedict XVI, the brilliant Josef Ratzinger. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm very grateful that you're going to talk about him today in, in mm-hmm. today's show, because as millions of people feel, I've, I love him. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But before we dive into his bio, can I just ask you personally, um, did mm-hmm. you ever meet him, Excellency? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, in fact, I told the story when I celebrated the um, the diocesan memorial mass for him, which I may have shared on the podcast. I honestly don't remember, but the um, I met him uh, on a few occasions celebrating mass. But there was uh, an impromptu meeting I had with him with a with a, a number of other classmates who were priests um, in St. Peter's Square early in the morning when he um, was walking by, lost in his thoughts. And of course, we stopped to say hello. One of my classmates in particular, who was at that time working in the Vatican, and really didn't acknowledge us. But, you know, a man with so many things on his mind, could you imagine what he had on his mind? Yeah. All right. So we didn't make up much of it. We kind of kept going. But, But he realized it. And he made his way back to us to say good morning, which is remarkable. I was so, I was so stunned that that is what he did with a man with all his responsibilities and all the rest. I thought to myself, wow, this is a man who the world does not know as well as they should. Um, and when he became Pope, unfortunately, the secular media painted him in a way that had precious little to do with the man as he really was. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I love no, that so story. Oh yeah. It was, and of course I, I celebrated mass twice with him. We had the, um, um, the ad limita when I was in New York, we met with Benedict 
and he um, he gave the most beautiful gift, a filigree cross, pectoral cross that I only wear on very special occasions. This was a magnificent gift. But you see, he was a man, among many things that we could talk about, he was a man who valued the power of beauty as an inspiration and, and the beauty as the longing of the heart to be yes. one with the beautiful. So, you know, people, again, the vestments he wore, the traditions, you know, people kind of say, well, that was just um, a neoconservatism. No, but, see, but, but they would not know what they're talking about. It, it was much more a try of an engagement of the heart for the sake of the Lord, not for himself. Yes. If there was a man who was the Pope who was not interested in personal honor, that was Pope Benedict. Yeah. It really was a question of having a beautiful experience because all of that can have a profound effect. See, there's a story in his life, right? When he was a little boy, and I believe it was the Archbishop of Cologne, he met him for the first time. And of course, in those days, we're talking the 30s, 1930s. He was born in 1927. I mean, so. And he was so taken aback by the presence, right? And I've, if I may say, the, 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 the ritual richness of meeting the archbishop and what he was wearing, that it moved his heart dramatically. And at that part, right, he, he discovered a, a vocation. He left the meeting saying to himself, you know, he, a tug. He left with the tug. But that was more than just the man, but it was also the engagement of his heart. Mm. That's the point, mm -hmm. right? The yes. engagement of the heart. Yes. So, um, yeah, there's so much to talk about, really, honestly. Where would you like right. to start, Excellency? Well, uh, let's do factoids, for, okay. example, for example. Great. This is a great place to start. As, as, a young, as, as a person who was born on Easter Sunday myself, the fact that he was born on Holy Saturday I, I, struck me, right? Yeah. As, as, as wonderful. He was born in 1927. So let's contextualize it. The end of the First World War was about nine years before the seeds of the Second World War were being sown right then and there. And as we know from history, Germany felt so humiliated from the Treaty of Versailles yes. that it lent all of these nationalistic, uber-nationalistic tendencies that eventually led to the Nazi Party. Right. That was, was led by that, by lunatic, maniacal lunatic, yes. right? Whose name I don't want to particularly utter. So he was born into a home whose father was a policeman, whose brother eventually became a priest, and whose father was vehemently anti-Nazi. Yes. And suffered at that hand, right? So from the earliest ages of his life, he recognized the face of evil. And by conviction and witness and example of others, fought against it. So another thing that I, you know, preparing for our conversation, things I did not really know about Pope Benedict's life. I knew that in Germany at the time, it was mandatory conscription into the army and also as youth into what they used to call Hitler's youth. Right. So he was part of that, but never really believed in it, never really participated wholeheartedly. And he ultimately deserted. Yes. From it. Okay. So. Again, he recognizes the face of evil and fights against it. 
Now, fast forward to 2003-04 with the sexual abuse crisis. He said quite clearly, there is filth in the church. And he used whatever resources he could to try to root it out, right? The, the, the evil of abuse and the evil of, of uh, uh, corruption of power and all the rest. So there's a line in his life which is not always appreciated, right? That he was very much a courageous man who stood up when there was evil and fought it, right, with every means he had, which I think is remarkable. Yes. Right. Yeah. The other thing I, I had not appreciated was he was ordained a priest in 1951. Now imagine that is eight years before I was born. So when he died, he was just a few months short of being a priest for 72 years. Oh wow. Hmm. I mean, that's. And just think of the experiences. Other things that I learned. For example, he received a full professorship in his early 30s was unheard of absolutely unheard of yeah but he was brilliant yeah i mean he was just brilliant yeah how many languages did he speak seven right and he also understood uh, biblical hebrew uh latin of course he knew biblical greek so from from as soon as he began his theological training, it was clear that this was a man who was in a camp different from just about everyone else. Yes. So that's another thing that when you look at it, you say to yourself, okay, so this man was an academic and he went from being an academic to being the archbishop, right? He was made an archbishop. And then ultimately a cardinal, ultimately prefect, ultimately pope. So I'm not sure Benedict ever really was a pastor in a church. Hmm. But he had a very pastoral spirit and a pastoral character. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is quite interesting. There's another pivot in his life, too, that we could talk about. And I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. And again, when you read things on the in social media, online, even in articles, everything is painted in black and white. And you and I know life is not in black and white. So they speak of a theological conversion, right? Mm -hmm. And the theological conversion was, he was one of the paritas of the Vatican Council. And what that is, is he was chosen as a theological expert to accompany the bishops, accompany his own bishop and accompany the other bishops. Right. And he was alongside people like Skillabeeks, Hans Kung, Karl Rahner, and that whole gang. And Certainly he was, um, for lack of a better word, he was a a mind that understood the tradition of the church and was willing to engage the modern world in trying to help the modern world to understand that tradition. And the adjournamento of the Second Vatican Council, the John XXIII and St. Paul VI, their whole vision was the engagement with the pastoral world. It wasn't changing what we believe we don't change what we believe yeah but we can change how we engage the world right yeah right we've talked about that a lot i think in the end where there was a pivot was in 1968 ish when germany as has happened what happened in the united states 
where there were widespread protests on, on university campuses and elsewhere. That began to raise the red flag in Joseph Reisinger's mind of what is actually causing that. And, and it, in the full analysis, I think it would be fair to say that if, if you were to have asked Pope Emeritus what it was, he would have said it in one word, relativism. It's the belief that there is no truth that is absolute. And it's this belief that ultimately the only thing that matters is me. <laughs> and the starting point is the subject. He speaks of that being rooted in Kant, right? The philosopher. And in the end, his reaction to that is that evacuates Christian faith. Because a redeemer and a savior is absolute. You don't have a quasi-savior. You don't have a savior light. You don't have a savior who, you know, kind of maybe somewhat <laughs> forgives your sins. He is or he isn't. Yes. And if he is, then he's teaching us the truth. Therefore, yes. you can choose not to believe it, but you can't choose to think that you're going to remake it. And, and in, the night, in the late 60s, he began to realize that. And that is why, in a sense, when it came to authority, when it came to tradition, it came to the magisterium, he hadn't changed what he believed, but began to emphasize more the elements yeah. that were presupposed before because the world was forgetting them. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. I feel like it, uh, it wasn't so much that he flipped excellency, it's that the world flipped. So when he was considered, you know, quote, this is, everybody hates these terms for the church, but because people understand what the idea is, you know, he was, quote, a liberal at the council because he believed that the church needed reforms. But then after the council, he became a, a critic of this uh, distortion of what the council intended. And so then he was considered a conservative, but he didn't flip. He kind of stayed true to, oh, go ahead. Correct. I think that, that your insight is extraordinarily important, right? And in the end, what we believe and how we conduct ourselves as a church, how we govern ourselves as a church, and how we live our lives as disciples in the world are not synonymous, right? In the end, the, the truth of the matter is um, there is a legitimate need for the church to be in perpetual renewal because of the sinfulness of its members. But the deposit of faith is the deposit of faith. The path to eternal life is the path to eternal life. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It is what it is, ladies yes. and gentlemen. Right? And if the world doesn't like it, that's the world's problem because the truth is the truth. Yeah. I sound like my father now, but this is it. This is it. Yeah. And he had no problems saying that. Yeah. Right? Yes. No Amen. problems at all saying right. that. Jesus Christ isn't a way, a truth, or a life. Correct. He is the truth. Correct. Yes. And one of the documents that was issued in his time was spoke about Christ, right? And the centrality of Christ. Because he was very much uh, an advocate of ecumenism and interreligious dialogue, but not because that all paths are equal, 
but all paths like the Vatican Council taught. In the religious traditions, there are elements of truth, but the fullness of the truth subsides, right, in the Catholic yes. Church. Right? Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of your re- recollections, my friend? What, what struck you? What do you think? So, uh, you know, there's there's something about his face. This is going to sound silly as I begin it. I Hopefully it makes sense. But there's something about his face that really you can see the humility and the gentleness and the holiness that you spoke about when your interaction with him in the piazza. So mm-hmm. that he's, uh, I'm, I'm part of the JP2 generation. And then along comes Benedict. He was, whenever my wife Rula would see a photo of Pope Benedict XVI or uh, him on video, she'd just look at his face and she'd just say, I need to meet that man. I need to yeah. see that man. Right. Yeah. There's a genuine goodness. Yeah. Right. right. So, so it, 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 it raises this whole question of the false choices in life. Because the false choices in life say you can have you can have a commitment to the truth that is very hard to live sometimes, right? You can have that and accompany people in their struggles. You right. either have to give up one or the other. And Benedict is the perfect example of where you don't have to give up one or the other. Yes. And in his personal relationships, as you say, was extraordinarily kind, extraordinarily generous, extraordinarily thoughtful. He was. Yeah. He was. Right? I had heard, just like you said, Excellency, I had heard several stories over the past week or so about people uh, interacting with him in the piazza mm-hmm. or s- oh, watching yeah. him. And oh, you have a story? Oh, let's hear. So like, uh, you know, like uh, I heard from somebody who worked at the Vatican, this is on the media, not personally, uh, who huh. said that they would eat lunch in the piazza and they would watch as Cardinal Ratzinger went from his apartment to the office of the CDF. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Along the way, he's just wearing his cassock, nothing red, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, people who didn't know better would stop him and ask him for directions to this tourist site or mm-hmm. what time does this bus arrive? And he would mm-hmm. stop and he would engage in them and and talk with them. And even tourists would say, Father, can you take our picture? <laughs> and he would take their picture. I mean, imagine... Looking back, those people must be like, oh, no, he was supposed to be in the picture with us. <laughs> There's that famous story we told when Elizabeth died and the and the tourist asked her to take yes. the picture of her yes. bodyguard. <laughs> Boy, did they feel foolish when they got home. <laughs> I I heard uh, – I, I just share one funny story. Um, you know Bishop Conley. I'm sure you know him yes. personally. Yes, of course. He, yes. He, he was. Uh, he said that uh, when he was back in the day, when he was stationed in Rome, he was living in residence with Archbishop Charles Brown, who was working at the CDF at the time. Yes. And so one day, Bishop Conley is walking across the piazza with a couple other priests, and they see Cardinal Ratzinger coming out of the CDF, and so they approach mm-hmm. him and they say, "Oh, uh, you know, uh, Eminence, you know, I'm so and so, and this is so and so." They introduce themselves to him, and uh, he's like, he's very polite. And to make a connection, they said, you know, we live with one of your officials, Archbishop Brown, at which point Cardinal Ratzinger smiled and he said, ah, yes, Charlie Brown. You know, he's a good man, Charlie Brown. (laughs) 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 So he must have had a great sense of humor, too. (laughs) Well, well, you know, it's it's again, I think when you have found the Lord, 
when you have found friendship with the Lord, then the best of you comes out. Yeah. What I preached about um, when we had the memorial mass was if there was one issue, there was one theme that kind of summarized Benedict's um, stance in life, <clears throat> particularly in the spiritual life, it would be um, he sought <clears throat> friendship with the Lord Jesus in the most profound way one could describe for his entire life. Hmm. And in all of his addresses, he returned back to that notion of friendship. We've spoken about that at great length, where you actually offer yourself, right, completely. You pour your life out for the person that you love, for that person's good. And there's an interesting phrase in his one of his homilies where he says, a true friend of Christ make friends with Christ's friends. Hmm. And of course, Christ's friends are everyone. Yeah. And you see that in the encyclicals he wrote too. So there's just almost like a simple logic, isn't it? There's almost like a simple logic to, to his, to the way he saw life. So a man who could understand the Kari, you know, the different echelons of angels, I could talk about, <laughs> right. Right? or talk about, you know, grace and the profound theology of grace and all of its complexity could then reduce the spiritual life to, to something so simple that everybody could live. Yeah. Pope Francis called him, uh, I, I, exactly. I'm not exactly sure what the adjective was, but I'm going to use the word an extraordinary catechist. Right. And again, a catechist is not a theologian. A catechist is someone who understands the faith, right? Lives the faith as a witness, but then can by his, his or her example and words, explain it to another, invite someone else into it. So I would say to anyone who's listening to this, you want an expose about, um, you, you want an explanation of Christology, then Benedict's books on Jesus of Nazareth are beautifully written, totally understandable, and completely authentic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Versus other popes who are a little bit more, uh, what's the word? Uh, complicated. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and the thing about Pope Benedict's writing too is that, uh, as understandable as it is, because the depth of his theology is so great that you can go back and reread it and reread it and just start to. Of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. Now, the, he was, again, going back to beauty, he was a musician. Played the piano, I think. Correct. Mm -hmm. Right. I think he was a great lover of Mozart. He, um, he liked cats. That's the one part of his personality that, you know, <laughs> I, you know I, I would have to work on. <laughs> uh but it showed then the gentler side. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And of course, I think history will remember him as the first pope in the modern era to voluntarily renounce the throne of Peter. And he cited advanced age and the demands of the office. As I've said before in our podcast, I think he came to realize when he fell in Mexico that it was, this may have been too much for him. 
but there was an inner physical constitutional strength because he lived to 95, my goodness. And his brother died, I think, at 96. So, but it's one thing to live and another thing to be healthy enough to, to govern the church. Because if, you know, if you don't govern the church, somebody else will try to govern the church. And he was wise enough to realize he could not allow that to happen. Right. So I think his resignation was the first since 1294, yeah. since Celestine V. So, and I think there are people who use that as part of their political and theological agenda. You know, there is no, there's no sense in my mind that Benedict wanted to do other than serve the church in his retirement as a mayor, as a man of prayer. Yes. But there were people who used him as a symbol to continue to divide the church. And I think that is very sad. Right. Now that he has passed, I wonder to myself whether or not they will feel unleashed and do it even more. And let's hope not. Yeah. I hope not. Because yeah. if anything, we need unity. We don't yes. need division in the church. Yes, right. definitely. Mm -hmm. So uh, in another minute or so, any other factoids? We can do more factoids after uh, the break. Yeah, but, uh, well, well, I would just say one thing. Let's, when we come back from the break, I think his Episcopal model is fascinating. Do you know what it is? Uh, I do. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say it in Latin, but it was uh, co-workers of the truth. Yeah, cooperators of the truth. Yeah, from the third epistle of John. And... And to think about what does that mean? Maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit about that. Awesome. Okay. So we got lots more to talk about, uh, about uh, the late, great Benedict XVI. Uh, on the other side of the break, we'll be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, so, Excellency, we were talking about um, 
Pope Benedict XVI's motto, cooperators of the truth, before we went to a right. break. Right. So, right, because let's think it through just a bit. The truth has its own reality. The truth is an objective reality. The truth ultimately is rooted in Jesus Christ. But having said that, right, there's a need for us to engage the truth and make it real in our lives. In other words, for it to guide our lives. That's why I think it's brilliant to speak of that phrase from the third epistle of John, to be a cooperator with the truth. Because you could also be a bystander to the truth. Yeah, or just an observer. Right. So if the world's rejecting objective truth, it's not enough to admit that there's objective truth. You have to engage the truth. You have to cooperate with the truth. You have, right. So so Benedict, from the very beginning, when he was ordained a bishop, which was 1977. So what is this? My math is that 45 years as a bishop? Uh, uh yes, 40 almost yeah. 46 years. Oh, 46 years. Right. Even then he had intuited. Right. And again, he became a bishop. So 1968, 1977. So nine years after he was really beginning to kind of like crystallize in his mind where his theology was going. Yeah. Um, We know why Pope Francis chose the name Francis. And it is an Episcopal, and now in his papacy, it's made very clear from his writings, you know, and that it's the, it's the Franciscan spirituality. So now my question to you is, where did he get this Benedict from? Where, where, where did that name come from? Do you have a sense? Uh, so my understanding is that um, uh, he was following in the line of Benedict the 15th and also mm-hmm. the original Benedict. The, uh, you mean the monk? Yes. So Benedict the 15th ruled not far from the beginning of the 20th century, if I remember correctly. Yes, right? World War One. And what was he known for? Um, guiding the church through World War One. Good for you. That's the answer. <laughs> That's the safe answer. Good for you. <laughs> That's how you passed. Right? <laughs> That's how I made it through school all those years. <laughs> No, it's not, that's true. Of course that's true. But also, he very much was a Pope who, who emphasized seeing the horror of World War, reconciliation, right? forgiveness, mercy. So it's interesting. In the papacy of Pope Francis, he lifted up very consciously this need for us to understand God's love as a merciful love, as a forgiving love, as a unifying love. But actually, that's also very much present in Benedict's papacy, starting with the name, right? And starting from from, um, the very charism that he wanted to embrace by entering into the papacy in the first place. I remember when Benedict came out onto the balcony of St. Peter's and he raised his hand. Do you remember he had a a black sweater underneath? Do you remember? (laughs) (laughs) It was chilly, right? So, I mean... (laughs) But but again, it, so I, I just feel very badly that for a lot of his public ministry, particularly in the papacy, he was so misunderstood by so many. Right? Yeah. The true. God's rock, was it God's rock wireless? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> yep. Ridiculous. And of course, Benedict of Norcia, man of prayer, you know, I just... 
So anyway, um, I, I, during our break, I said uh, the one thing I was very envious of Pope Benedict is as I myself grow older, he had beautiful white hair, <laughs> right? Because he had hair. That's yes. the point, right? <laughs> yeah. So that part of my jealous nature has to has to come to conversion. Your hair looks um, pretty good, Excellency. <laughs> what's left of it? Thank you. That's very kind of you. Now, <laughs> I have heard, and I'm not sure if this is true or not. I have heard, um, and I've read in social media that he had a very good and particular friendship with Queen Elizabeth huh. okay. in England because they were contemporaries in age. They were contemporaries in some sense in theological viewpoints, meaning that just as we described, the anarchy, the, the modern attempt at um, undermining institutions, all the rest, they yes. would have shared a great concern about that. Not because of the personal privilege involved, but simply because of the fabric of society in the end, right? Yes. And the nature and, and of their both, offices. Correct. And they were both the heads of their respective churches. Even though you, you speak of ecumenism, you speak of the, the Archbishop of, of uh, Canterbury, but in fact, the head of the Anglican Church is the, the British monarch. Yes. Interestingly, we speak about courage. Do you remember when Benedict went to the United Kingdom? And if I'm not mistaken, it was a state visit. And if I'm not mistaken, the invitation came from Elizabeth to come oh, wow. to England. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but that's, I have a recollection of that. But he beatified John Henry Newman in England. Right? And there were some people saying, well, how's that ecumenical? And mm -hmm. he had converted it. But it's all about the truth. Yeah. It's all about the odyssey and the journey of his personal life. See, it, but he did it in such a way that it's not offensive, right? Because you looked into his face, like Ruler said, you saw a genuine goodness. But this is it. This is the truth. I need to cooperate with the truth. What can I tell you? Yeah. This is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he canonized Andre Bessette. Ah, okay. Right? And we're taping today on his feast day. Yes. And we were together at Mass earlier today, right? Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Again, Great uh, a, man, a man who was a textile worker and a porter and doorkeeper yeah. became the vehicle of, of hundreds of people being healed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wonder to myself. And I alluded to this um, in my homily at the Memorial Mass for Pope Benedict. I wonder to myself how really lonely it is to be the successor of St. Peter. Hmm. I mean, when you go to bed at night, right, and you kind of roll around in bed, you wonder to yourself, all of the churches of the, of, I mean, all the individual churches that form the church, all the problems, all the cross currents, all the temptations, billions of peoples and their lives. I mean, in the end, it all ends with you. So when people say the burden of the office and, you know, it was, he was growing too old and some people are very flip about that, they really have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. That it, it is a burden that uh, in the end, the Lord calls you to do it. The Lord will give you the grace to do it. But there must be an awful price to be paid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, right. That uh, understanding that you are the shepherd responsible for billions of souls and, mm-hmm. you know, to the degree that you can be responsible for them. Also, the attacks that must come on the successor of Peter spiritually. Uh, and in the church. Yes. Which is a disgrace. Yes. Don't start me now. I'm going to get all worked up. <laughs> you know, okay. uh, Excellency, when um, Pope Benedict came to the U.S., in mm-hmm. 08, I think it was. Yes, to, to 2008. Yep. He had this, uh, he he gave us this image of the church that I think is so beautiful. And I'd love to hear you expound upon it. But basically, he was at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Yes. Yep. And he said, I'm sure you remember, um, he said, uh, you know, the church is very much like the stained glass windows on this, on this uh, mm-hmm. cathedral. From the outside, the windows look dark and heavy, maybe even um, dreary. But once you enter inside the church mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. see them from the other side and the light coming through, they really come alive. Mm-hmm. And it's only from the inside of the church, you know, mm-hmm. capital C church, that you can mm-hmm. experience the faith and the and the beauty and the grace. Absolutely. Well, that's but that that's the point. But that summarizes his life. You can look at Jesus from the outside in. You could you could study him as an historic figure. You could study him as a religious philosopher. You could study him as a as a human phenomenon. That's going. That's looking at the church from the outside. If you imagine the church is a relationship with him, but once you enter into it, it lights up. It's a different experience. And to a certain extent, you cannot explain that experience without having it first. You can invite people into it. You can give them right the, the, the opportunities to be able to have grace touch their lives. We talked about that. But in the end, if you don't have the experience, you don't see it light up. And he was lit up in his own faith since when he was a little boy. And you could see. So when we talk about evangelization of the world, now what's interesting is you know, Pope Francis has done a, a remarkable job of restructuring the curia of the church, the universal curia of the church, the Roman curia. But one of the things, the only real significant change Pope Benedict did was to create the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of the New Evangelization, Archbishop Fisichella, who's still there as the pro-prefect, right? It still exists even in the restructuring. Because I think Benedict, you know, building on what John Paul had taught, understood that what I just described is the work of evangelization. The work of evangelization is to preach the charisma, the offer of salvation, and ask people to find the courage in the grace of the Holy Spirit to enter in, take one step in, one toe in, and you begin to glimpse what you just described. And then the dynamics, the grace of the Holy Spirit will then lead the person more and more into the church. So he didn't do much of it. You know, some people say, you know, he didn't perform this and that and finance and all the rest of it. Perhaps some of that is true, I suppose. Uh, but the same people could say, for me, 10 years is the Bishop of Bridgeport. Why didn't you do this? You didn't do that. You do the other, blah, blah, blah. All right. I'm sure when I die, the next Bishop of Bridgeport has a lot to do. That's not the point, <laughs> right? <laughs> 
The point is when he did make change, it was lasting change. Yes. Right? Yes. Concrete right? and lasting. Yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. Um, interesting. Go back to the the question of Christ, right? And the place of Christ in in basically in creation in the schema. The 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 teaching, right? The Dominus Jesus that was issued. Now I forget the actual date when it was issued. He speaks of right the unicity, the uniqueness, and the irreplaceability of salvation in Jesus Christ and the revelation that comes in Jesus Christ. So when you speak, and a lot of people got worked up about it, right, in part because, you know, their understanding from being outside the church, right, looking at it without the color, right, it's all about compromise. And his, no, 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 this, you entered, this is the fullness of the truth. Now, there may be a place for everyone in it. So that insight is sometimes missing even among the active members of our church maybe uh maybe for the for all of us you could give us a few sentences on the theme of dominus jesu so that everyone's yeah. kind of on the same page and following you, Excellency. Yeah. So basically what, what it was, was this exposition of the, the nature of Christianity, right? And the unique role that Christ plays. And he is the unique savior and redeemer. So there, there, there's much revealed religion, but it makes very clear that it all moves towards and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Let's just simply put. And we live in a world that when you speak of dialogue, you mean that everything's open for conversation and compromise and discussion. No, it's not. Right. But no, it's not. Right. No, it's not. And forgive me if, if anybody's listening to this saying, well, you know, he's off the deep edge. But uh, I mean, I long to be saved. I need a redeemer who will forgive me my sins, and they are many. Only one person will do that, who is Jesus Christ. And Benedict had no problems saying that. And he said, ultimately, that Christianity was a religion according to reason and right reason, that they're not opposed to each other because that's the fullness of what the human being is. He is the Logos right, who took on flesh. And yes. even those who are honestly searching can even in their reason begin to find the first bunti, the first, as we say in Italian, the first uh, seedlings of what revelation will make fully clear, right? Divine revelation. Why I said what I said is because, I mean, when you scratch under the surface, there are some who even are active in Catholic faith who I'm not exactly sure understand that. It's almost as if there's kind of like uh, 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 an equanimity that, well, I mean, it is what it is. You you follow your conscience, you follow the tradition, and in the end, you know, we're all trying to be good. Well, I mean, granted, you're trying to be good, and I granted that if you're in a religious tradition, you're going to follow it and be authentic to it. But it doesn't mean that the missionary impulse is gone, because we have to proclaim Christ, Savior, Redeemer. Yes. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what made famous, absolutely famous, and again, controversial in the time, was the motu proprio, sumorum pontificium. And do you remember that? 2007? Yes, I do. 2007. Yeah. Yes. So tell us, what, 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 what's the kernel of that, that Pope Benedict? Uh, what's the kernel? So in, in, a, in a nutshell, um, that was where he, uh, I guess, to an, he promoted... He promoted the use of, uh, of the Roman Missal of 1962 and um, made it uh, easier for priests to celebrate that Mass and for mm-hmm. folks like me to attend or, and participate in that Mass um, mm-hmm. uh, be, with the idea that uh, the, the traditional Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo Mass would be mutually, um, they would benefit uh, each other. Correct. That's very well said. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. In a sense, it's, it was cl- he made very clear in his letter to the bishops of the world, which I do remember, right? Because this happened the, the, the year after I was ordained a bishop. What he said was, is that the, the, the mass of, of the missal from the Council of Trent was never abrogated, meaning it was never said it could not be celebrated anymore. So therefore, it stands in a line of continuity. Uh, and there's always continuity in the liturgical life of the church. So there isn't rupture. This ends, this begins. It, it kind of like evolves, develops over time, right? Always under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So prior to Pope Benedict, under John Paul, you needed the bishop's permission, and it was much more regulated. He allowed with the need of the faithful being the guiding principle, he allowed priests then to decide without necessarily the oversight of the bishops. Now, in hindsight, I think that may have led to some abuses. And the reason I say that is because there are some priests who confuse their personal preference with the pastoral need of their people. So if there's a genuine pastoral need, there's not a person that I know of who would say we shouldn't try to meet it. But sometimes it's the priest's preference that's imposed on the people that the the, the motu proprio of Pope Benedict allowed that to be a possibility. But that was not his intent, without a doubt. And he made it very clear in his letter to the bishops that a priest could not not celebrate the Novus Ordo because it would be breaking communion with the larger church. Yes. But, right? But to your point about the cross-pollination, the fact that these different forms of celebrating the Mass would be under the one tent would be so that they learn from each other, that they mutually enrich each other. Yes. Right? We've spoken about that. So yes. he took a lot of criticism from this, a lot, a lot. But I think in hindsight, um, and now with Pope Francis's new motu proprio, perhaps we're at the point where, and Pope Francis himself said it, that we need to find a way to realize Benedict's vision to have the elements of the, of the mass in, that existed for centuries enrich the common celebration of mass. Yes. Versus the, the, this group versus that group. Yes. Right? Well, once again, it's about beauty, right? It's about beauty. Yeah. So, yeah, and and yeah, interesting. It's interesting. 
So in, in I want to uh, be sure to ask you this because uh, this conversation has been, uh, well, I mean, we touched on a lot of stuff, his life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. works, um, mm-hmm. without, uh, w- without expressly um, using these phrases, you touched on some of the key elements that a lot of people talk about with him, his deep love for Jesus, the mm-hmm. uh, hermeneutic of continuity, the dictatorship mm-hmm. of relativism. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if I could just ask you, there's, uh, with, when you look at like sports figures, who's the greatest, who does this, who's, you know, who's, who's the best at this particular aspect of the sport or whatever, there's a lot, there's recency bias, right? Well, I saw him, so he must be. And I want to ask you about the theology of Benedict XVI slash Joseph Ratzinger in the context of church history. Somebody I heard, I can't remember who it was, they said, you know, the question is not going to be, what do we think of Benedict's writings five years from now? It's going to be, what do we say about Benedict's writings 500 years from now? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk about that, Excellency. All right. So that's a very great question. And allow me a tentative answer. Okay. Tentative in the sense of only history will answer what history is going to say. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. All right. You allude to the theology of Joseph Ratzinger. Remember, he was Pope only eight years. He died at 95 and was retired for 10. Yes. So the vast bulk of the theology you are speaking of, he wrote when he was not Pope. And that itself raises a very interesting dynamic, doesn't it? Because unlike John Paul, where he had a huge right? Yes. Corpus. My goodness gracious. I mean, (laughs) I have one book. You you have to lift barbells to pick up the thing. It's just huge. (laughs) It's huge. If I'm not mistaken, Benedict wrote only three encyclicals. I could be wrong, but there are only three. He started a fourth, which Pope Francis actually published. Yes. Right? Yes, that's right. Right. So we're not, but so what, so the first question I have to ask back to you is, um, how many popes are in the same situation where the bulk of their theological writing occurred before they were pope? It has to be almost very few, if any. Yeah, exactly. So it puts him in a league unto his own just on that point, right? Yes. I mean, if, if, if you are correct, and I have no reason to think you would not be correct, that in 500 years they would be, you know, reading um, Pope Benedict's, that is... Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, that is Father Ratzinger's uh-huh. writings, then it would be logical to think that he would also be a doctor of the church. Right? If you have that enduring an impact, right. yes. that's exactly what a doctor of the church is. Yes. Someone who is such a, a profound explicator of the faith that he or she is recognized as having a perpetual contribution to the death. And it could very well be that he was. Somebody mentioned that actually recently to, upon his death, that they think the, the most fitting way to recognize his place in the history of our church is to name him a, do- a doctor of the church. And I would think that would happen after the passage of time. That doesn't happen right after you die. Right. right? Yeah. Again, history has to show what history wants. Yes. Under yep. the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Right. But 
I wouldn't be surprised in the least. And he, if that's the case, he'd be one of the most easy to understand doctors. That we have. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, what a man. Uh, um... May I tell a story though? Yes, please. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a young bishop called Frank Joseph Caggiano and was invited to go to World Youth Day in Sydney, Australia, my very first World Youth Day. And Pope Benedict was there. And that was when, if my memory serves me correctly, and I'm almost certain it was, that was when, or maybe not, or actually it was, maybe it was Madrid. But Pope Benedict was at a World Youth Day. It may have been Madrid. Where we had, I thought I call it the the typhoon. Where we had this huge thunderstorm occur while we were doing the vigil celebration. Oh wow! And I know they came and they all huddled around him because we just couldn't continue, right? And he and he just sat there in the midst. He was not going to leave all those young people to face the storm alone. Isn't that amazing? I love that story. I, I said to myself, I'd run for cover probably. Was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ducking already. Just I'm not even in the rain. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. No, yeah. that's uh, that's beautiful. I love that story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So uh, let's take one more break, Excellency. Yes. And we'll be back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey. It's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, here is this week's question. Uh, the listener wrote in, what happens to those souls in purgatory who nobody prays for? Somebody brought up the fact that non-Catholics in purgatory probably don't have anyone praying for them since their religions don't encourage it. Do those souls get stuck or are they simply there for longer? Well, I, it's, it's, I understand the concept behind the question, but my experience has been that when we pray, we pray for all the holy souls in purgatory. That's what I do, right? I do that. In which case, I'm not sure that that there's anybody left behind. I pray for my mother's repose, my father's repose, my classmates who have died. I I pray for my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, as you do, right? Whoever's deceased. Yes. But I also pray for all the holy souls in purgatory. So I think this, the worry behind the question, I think is not a worry that a person has to take too much to heart. Great. Okay, so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. It's a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization that makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Thanks again, Excellency, for a great week. Oh, yeah, my pleasure, my friend. My pleasure. It was always good to see you. Thank you. And uh, would you please give us your blessing before yes, you go? Yes, of course. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Why don't we pray together? Glory be to the Father, and to the, and Son. To the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My friend, enjoy. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Excellency. God bless. Take care.